Okay, you have, um, wow, we the men's group tonight, huh? You ladies are in a short supply tonight. <clears throat> uh, the last three weeks, I'm, I'm appreciative of uh, Don and Paul and Bob uh, filling in. Well, Karen and I had a little R&R, and... Um, I'm sure that they did uh, a wonderful job, but uh, you you have any questions about anything to this point? I mean, did Bob confuse you in any way last week? Because um, he's here tonight, I'll make him clarify if that's necessary. Thank you, sir. <laughs> well, I knew he would. Um, an A minus. Okay. Well, that leaves him, that's an A, but it gives him room to continue to improve, right? We'll put the positive slant on that, Bob. So, and Actually, I, I purposely took those uh, sections so that I wouldn't have to deal with, um, with those texts, and they, they would. So I appreciate them stepping in and being the sacrificial lambs. I should have stayed away one more week because tonight we're dealing with divorce and remarriage. Um, and I'll just say up front, <clears throat> it's not an easy topic and it's not an easy topic because of uh, where our culture is. And um, I want you to know I'm going to do a disclaimer like Todd did this weekend that this has no bearing on anybody's situation in here. Most uh, of them I have little to no knowledge about. So uh, we're going to try to understand what Jesus is saying in this text and um, try to apply it the best we can. We're not making any judgments uh, in anybody's life or circumstances. So I want you to know that up front. Um you know, this study, this uh, Sermon on the Mount, uh, has to deal with uh, some very challenging topics, as you've well uh, become well acquainted with, uh, I guess, at this point. And this is just another one. Jesus is showing us, if we can be repetitive for a moment, what it means to be in the kingdom. What kingdom people look like, live like, how they conduct their lives. So he's given us the ideal, you know, his expectation for people who are in the kingdom. Uh, this occurred early in his ministry. It is great discipleship material. If you're going to be discipling someone or needing to be discipled yourself, this is uh, the ideal place to go. If you can work through this sermon and grasp it and apply it to your life, you're well on your way in uh, following Christ. But our purpose is trying to understand uh, what this text says tonight, how it may apply to our lives, how we can... Uh, understand it properly because there's a lot of um, misunderstanding, I think, about the topic in our culture. It's a lot like the complementarian issue uh, when it comes to men and women in the world, that, that sometimes there are agendas in the culture that drive these discussions. You know, feminism is driving a lot of things in our culture today, and it's not a matter of equality from a Christian perspective. Men and women are always, have always been equal uh, in God's sight. They have equal value. They have distinct roles, however. And so it's important for us to understand these things. Same thing happens with 
uh, divorce. One of the interesting statistics, and I don't remember now where I saw this. I probably shouldn't even reference it because I can't point you toward it. But um, I want to say that the divorce statistics are actually higher in the church now than they are outside the church. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. I mean, we're not talking about a massive change, uh, you know, 10% or 20% difference. It's probably fractions, but um, but the, the important thing there is that there's very little difference between what, what the church does and what goes on in the, in the culture around us. The same thing's true with um, a lot of other things that, that we see in society, whether it's pornography uh, participation, addiction, or uh, premarital sex, or any of those kind of things, that the church, the church community is really not any different than what we see outside the church. So what does that tell us? If you were going to analyze those kind of statistics, what would you say that means? What do we take away from that? We're not different from the world, so we're not really following Christ's blueprint, are we? We're not following His his mandate for our lives because what He's called us to do is to live a life that is distinct from the world, that's different from the world. And the Christian community is not very distinct. So you can understand these days why the church has become so anemic uh, in its witness to the world. The world looks at us as, number one, hypocrites. Number two, ignores us because we're easily ignored. We're not any different. We're just kind of a, another organization, another club. And, um, and they see us trying to tell them how to live their lives while not really following the same advice for ourselves. Again, not trying to make any judgments here, just saying that's, that's the way I would break down a lot of the statistics we see. So, in this text, verses 31 and 32 in chapter 5, Jesus uses this phraseology again that you have heard it said, or he says here, it was also said, but it's the same thing said maybe a little differently. It was also said, or you have heard it said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus is dealing with a divorce in this section. I don't believe any of us would argue with the, with the idea that marriage in God's expectation has always been to be permanent, right? It's to be permanent. He talks about one flesh coming together. And so God's expectation, God's desire, God's will has always been no divorce. We see him use it a lot in the Old Testament as a metaphor, as a picture and a portrait of spiritual decay. Spiritual adultery is, is referred to. Um, in fact, Israel and Judah both were judged for their spiritual immorality. Uh, God uses Hosea. Hosea, you remember the story of Hosea? Y'all been going through the Bible. Yeah, God told him to marry a woman who was unfaithful. And she continued to be unfaithful. And God said, go get her, bring her back, you know, be loyal to her. What was he saying? He's saying, this is the relationship I'm having with you. I'm trying to be in a covenant with you and you keep being disobedient. You keep being immoral, you know. 
worshiping false gods and things that way. So he, he used that as a, a picture of what not to do in following him. So it, it's a tough, tough subject. Um, so we can all agree that divorce is never God's will. A few years ago, another situation, another church, uh, I had an interesting thing happen within a period of just a few weeks. Never had it happen since then, but um, I had, a, had a, a guy that was a part of my staff came into my office one day. We had been on a mission trip together for two weeks. First day back in the office, he comes in at the end of business that day and says, by the way, I wanted to let you know that I'm move, going home and moving out tonight. And I said, what? He said, I'm going home, I'm moving out. And I said, what do you mean by that? Moving where? What? What? Well, me and my wife have been having problems. We've been working. We can't get things worked out. And so I'm, I'm leaving. And, you know, you can imagine. He's on my staff. And I'm thinking, what are you doing? You don't do this, you know. Let us take you to counseling, send you to counseling. Let's, let us get involved in this. But as most often is the case, by the time it becomes public with two people, it's already so far gone that there's no opportunity for anybody to get involved and help salvage it. I picked up the phone. I called his wife and I said, I need you to be in my office like now. So she came and sat down across from me and I said, tell me what's going on. I've got one side of the story. I need to know what the rest of it is. And she looked at me and she said, listen, this has been brewing for a while. I want you to know I've been praying about this and praying about this. And I'm thinking, okay, great. You're praying. That's the right response. And she said, and I believe God has told me that we're supposed to divorce. Well, you know, I probably didn't handle it very well at the moment, but my response was to reach over, pick up my Bible, and toss it across to the other side of the desk. And I said, show me where God says that. Anywhere. Show me where God says that he wills for divorce. And, you know, I say it didn't, I didn't handle it well because all it did was make her mad. And that wasn't my point. My point was, you're saying, you're signing God's name to something that God never Never condones. Never. A couple months later, another lady shows up in my office. A couple that had been married a while. They'd had three daughters, two of them. Interestingly enough, the two youngest ones were Siamese twins. Joined, joined at the, I think it was the hip and maybe, maybe under the arm somehow. And they'd gone through surgeries. I mean, they'd been through it all, you know, getting these girls where they were healthy and and um, um, dealing with all those kind of things. And, you know, all three girls are up in high school age now, and I don't know if they've been so devoted to these things going on in their lives that they lost touch with one another, but she comes in and she says, you know, we've been struggling in our marriage for some time, and I've been praying, and I've been praying, and I've been praying, and I believe God has told me that we should divorce. Well, I hadn't learned anything. Tossed the Bible over and said, show me where. Show me where God says that you should do this. And, of course, she couldn't. And, um, and they did. Both couples divorced. Now, the good news is the second couple with the three girls eventually, after divorce, reconciled and remarried. And, and to my knowledge now, they're, they're still together and with grandchildren and all that stuff. So all's well and ended well there finally. But... 
the first couple ended up going their separate ways, remarrying, starting new families. They had a daughter by their marriage. So you, you know the complications and the dysfunction that occurs very often in those uh, circumstances. The point being that God, God doesn't will this. It, it, Jesus says over in Matthew chapter 19, He said that God permitted divorce under certain circumstances because of the hardness of the people's heart. Because of the hardness of their heart. Not because it was His will. He gave... Uh, two people, a man was to leave his mother and father and be joined in one flesh to his wife. Um, so what's Jesus doing in this sermon? He's, he's telling us that this is what kingdom people look like. And so he's saying, you've heard it said. What's going on in the culture is that it's not just in the culture, but the religious leaders of Jesus' day had allowed divorce to run rampant. I mean, they they weren't uh, they weren't divorcing for the heavy duty issues. They were divorcing over anything and everything. Now, look. Um, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter twenty four. This is where it all sprang from, and they misinterpreted this passage. Laws concerning divorce. Verses 1 through 4 says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and he sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies and who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So the same thing had happened... In, in Moses' day, people were looking for any excuse and every excuse to abandon their covenants, to abandon their relationship one to the other. And so God gave them this law not as permission to do this, but as a tightening, a narrowing of what was taking place. You have people putting women out. Now, let's kind of set the scene a little bit. In, in these cultures... The woman was particularly dependent upon a relationship with a man. She's, she's dependent upon her father to provide for her until he arranges for her to be given to a, a well-intended, well-established man who could continue to provide for her. Okay? Right? We know that. If, if she uh, gives birth to children... Uh, the eldest son then took the responsibility. If something happened to the father, then he was to care for mom and anybody else that needed caring for. It became his responsibility. That's the way it worked. Uh, there, wasn't, there wasn't a safety net, you know, like we see with Social Security, with, um, you know, with all kinds of uh, uh, other 
things available in the culture. Those things didn't exist. You needed family. That's the the truth behind the story with Ruth and and, uh, Naomi, right? They go off to a foreign land. The men all die. It's just the the two daughter-in-laws and the mother mother-in-law, and they've got no they got nobody to uh, support them, nobody to take care of them. They come back, and that's when Ruth is out gleaning in the field of a kinsman redeemer. By the way, someone who had the ability to bring them into his household and support them and care for them. So that whole story, again, picture of Christ and us but also telling us something about the culture of that day. So in Moses' day, you've got these men turning women out because of anything they dreamed up. You know, if she burned dinner or she didn't prove herself to be, I mean, that's what it eventually got to. Some scholars believe that that in the day of Moses, in this Deuteronomy passage, that what was taking place and what's referred to there is not adultery, but fornication, which the difference is what? Fornication is before marriage. Adultery is breaking the covenant, so it's being unfaithful in marriage, being unfaithful to your spouse. Fornication is being engaging in loose living before you're married. So some people believe that the implication there is that this is referring to a situation, the only time that divorce is permitted in this situation is if a man marries a woman and discovers that she's not a virgin. He discovers that she's not been, uh, that she's been with a man and that he is within his rights to divorce her at that point. That he can say, I've been lied to by your family, I've been lied to by you, therefore the covenant is null and void. And that, that that's what God is laying out and saying, here's the time where you can separate legally. All right? Anything else doesn't pertain. And he's saying because of the importance that's placed upon the welfare of a woman in this society and her dependence, then you must write her a certificate of divorce. And in this certificate of divorce, you would stipulate exactly why that she hasn't committed adultery because in this day that Moses is is preaching this sermon in Deuteronomy, what's the law of the land when it comes to adultery? Death. Yeah. So there there was no divorce for adultery because death was the answer for adultery. Uh, that was you were it was a capital offense so you were stoned so there's no need for a divorce because now you're dead right you take your vows until death do us part stoning is dead so there's no need for a divorce so certificate of divorce where the um, the exact offense or complaint or reason the divorce is stipulated and this was to protect her against any false rumors or against a later accusation from somebody that she committed adultery and therefore be stoned so this was uh, an act of protection for her so that she could remarry um, have some sense of protection and support uh, from someone 
That makes sense? So uh, some people quibble with this a little bit, saying, well, you know, in Hebrew culture, you know, the, the betrothal period was considered marriage anyway, and so any act that took place in that time frame would have been considered adulterous. But again, adultery is the capital offense, so stoning would have been the response if it happened then. Um, it makes sense to think of it this way. Move forward to Jesus' day, and this thing has gotten out of hand. These guys, the, the Jewish leadership, they're no longer writing exactly what these are. In some cases, they're not even providing this. They've decided that, hey, she burned my meal last night. She's a lousy cook. Somebody down the street that's a better cook, I'm going to marry her, so you're, I'm divorcing you. You're out. Okay? Bring in the next one. You know, kind of the Henry VIII thing. Except they weren't killing them. They were essentially killing them in the culture because they were turning them out without any protection uh, for over li little offenses. Now, think about it. If Logically speaking, if you're going to turn a woman out for some little something, let's say that is not sexual immorality, but it's because she didn't keep the house right or because she didn't sweep the floor three times today or whatever it is that you've decided qualifies her, by all means, you should give her a certificate of divorce and spell that out right because that would be trivial in most people's eyes. But see, that would have been self-indicting, right? They would have been indicting themselves and the trivial nature of what they were doing. But the, the point is that this is the, the lay of the land when Jesus speaks to this. Divorce was running rampant. God in the Old Testament had drawn Deuteronomy 24 as an attempt to get this under control and narrow it and say, look, here's, here is a, an acceptable reason for divorce. It's not my plan or will. Not saying that you're commanded to or that you have to. Think about Joseph, right? Joseph. That's why Joseph considered putting Mary away. He considered divorcing her because she's got a baby. She's going to have a baby. She's been unfaithful. We were betrothed. We are officially recognized as marriage. She's been unfaithful. I'm not going to execute her. There's not going to be any stoning. At some point in time, that, that law got watered down to where the stoning went away and divorce became the substitute for stoning. But Joseph, because God revealed it to him and said, this is not acceptable. You know, she's, she is not, she's not been unfaithful. She's housing the Messiah, the promised seed. And so uh, Joseph believed, put his faith in God at that. And so he, he married her and went through with, with things. So there was no demand that you had to do it, but God is saying this is, this is allowed if this under these circumstances. In the New Testament, Jesus is drawing this boundary. He's trying to bring this back in as well. He's doing the same thing. He says... You've heard it said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. So what's he saying? If you divorce her for burning your dinner last night, and you're not giving her a certificate of divorce on top of that, she has to go out. She's in a position where she's got to have support, right? So what's she going to do? If she's a, a, a woman in this society, chances are somebody may want to marry her. And so what's she going to do? Say no? 
she's going to say, well, yeah, this, this is a good thing for me. I need to be married. I need support. I need to be, have a family. I want to. So she does. Well, he said, what you're doing is you're putting her in a position where she's now committing adultery because the first marriage has not been satisfactorily dissolved. Okay? She's still legally married to the first guy. And furthermore, he said, the one who divorced her, you're, you're involved in this adultery too. So he's calling them adulterers. <laughs> These guys that are listening. He says, not only are you making her an adulterer, you're becoming an adulterer, and what's the rightful penalty for adultery? Death. <laughs> so you can see how this quickly became... You can understand when you read through this how Jesus quickly became public enemy number one, right? <laughs> I mean, he is, he's in their face on these things, and it's, it's very uh, challenging, very difficult. Um, in our own culture, we're facing similar challenges. Generally, we see about one of it over two marriages end in divorce. And, and as I said earlier, tragically, the statistics are not not better in the church. If anything, they may be slightly worse. Last time I looked, now maybe they've improved. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's because people outside the church don't get married as frequently now. And so that could skew the figure some. Maybe. Uh, I don't know if anybody's done a, a survey on that or not. But <clears throat> I read on it, was in Christianity Today, an article in there, and said that for the ones that went to church regularly, Four, three or four times a week, that number was different. Yeah. It was okay. a lot lower. And that makes sense, right? Yeah. That would make sense. Those are people that are trying to be kingdom people. They they feel um, a conviction, and they're, they're trying to live their lives uh, in a way that brings their lives under God's authority, you would want to assume there. So it makes sense that their lives would look different than those that are just going to church. And, you know, these numbers have been skewed too by some of the dynamics in church life in that we've, you heard Todd refer to them Sunday as the silly centers, um, churches where they're just gathering through an attractional model and making people feel like they've done their due diligence in church when in fact there's not been anything really um, monumental going on in inside it's just an outward checking of a box that says yeah i went to church and i feel good now i don't have to go back for a month um the church is in a bit of a catch-22 situation uh, or at least that's how um we would think about it because divorce and remarriage is so prevalent the church often ignores the issue and minimizes it as a problem um, it's just a no-win situation to talk about. A little bit like the topic last weekend on suicide, that that's a topic that people kind of like, why do you want to talk about that? Well, it's a predominant issue in our culture, particularly in our area even. And we need, we heard statistics there last weekend that said, you know, that talking about it is helpful. It does, it does depress those numbers. Uh, of what's actually happening. So um, having, having uh, open civil conversations about these things is a good thing to understand them better. We are prone simply to um, adjust and accommodate mostly to what's going on in the culture. John MacArthur said that there are four positions or interpretations of the biblical data on divorce and remarriage. 
All four are evident in various ways across Christendom. This is what he said. The strictest view is that the divorce is not permissible under any circumstance or for any reason. The opposite view, okay, so we would say not permissible. Not permissible at any time. The opposite view would be what? Always. Both divorce and remarriage are permissible for any reason. The other two views lie in between those extremes. One is that divorce is permitted under certain circumstances, but remarriage is never permitted. The other is that both divorce and remarriage are permitted under certain circumstances. So, divorce permitted at times. No remarriage. This would be divorce permitted. I had a hard time writing them right here. Um, remarriage permitted. Remarriage permitted. In some cases. Those are basically the four positions that he claims are evident. Now, this all, I think, should be placed under the heading of Satan's attacks on the family. You know, why is he so concerned and intent on emptying his artillery on the family? Um, well, he knows that, that the family is God's design uh, to multiply creatures, to procreate. Um, he knows that, that marriage and family are probably the most powerful portraits of our relationship with God, of His desire for us. Um, the family is God's design to raise up additional worshipers, and the family is critical to the structure of a healthy society where we organize, where we learn morality, and, uh, and become godly. So the enemy s seeks to destroy. He's seeking simply to destroy uh, this this tool that God uses, that He's designed and uses. And you see it played out not only through the, the, the division in the family, but you see it with the aberrations, the abominations, to the institution of marriage, right? Same-sex marriage, homosexuality. All of these are direct and intentional um, attacks against the very design of God. That's what they are. The people may be involved in them, don't understand what's going on. They may be pawns in this, but it's certainly spiritual warfare at its zenith. So divorce and family dysfunction are particularly useful Satan, uh, Satan, uh, to Satan's strategies. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, <clears throat> you've got the word uh, permiss 
permitted and permissible and so forth by whom? Who permits and who per, who gives permission or well the the church would say God that this is this, this God is, is never okay with divorce. No, but he permitted it. He has designed circumstances is what they're saying where it's permitted. Jesus just affirmed it here in the case of sexual immorality. Paul also in writing to the Corinthians said, basically, I would summarize it this way, that the Bible has told us that there are two, two situations where divorce is permitted without penalty, without, um, with permission, with allowance, okay? One is where you have two people who are married and one person is engaging in unfaithful behavior and is unrepentant, okay? So the other spouse knows that this person or finds out this person is engaging in unfaithful behavior, but this person will not stop. So they continue to practice unfaithful behavior. The Bible seems to indicate that divorce is permissible, is permissible for that person in that circumstance without judgment, okay? Um, the second one that Paul talks about is where you have two people who live together in marriage and one of them becomes a believer. The other one's an unbeliever. And Paul talks about, he said, the believer should not divorce the unbeliever just because you're trying to justify it by saying, well, I'm a Christian now. I, I can't get along with this unbeliever or we don't see things the same way. We don't have the same worldview. I need a divorce. And he says, no, don't do that. You stay in the marriage. This is in 1 Corinthians 7. Stay in the marriage because when you stay in the marriage, that person may come to Christ through your witness, right? But he says down there that if the unbeliever no longer wants to be married to the believer, that you should let him go. In other words, release him and let him go. And in both cases, uh, people that, that I've read at least say that in those situations, if God permits that, then there's no, there's no uh, judgment that follows that, that, that forgiveness also accompanies that. And so a person would then be free to remarry. Does that make sense? But that's a far cry from what we see in our culture, right? Uh, no fault, divorce, those kind of things. So some churches who would be very, very hard line on this would say divorce is not permissible at any time. Okay, they would, they would say what you started to say, but, but they would hold hard and fast. No divorce, not ever. No circumstance justifies. Some churches more liberal and uncaring in this thing would say it's permissible for any reason. You know, you all work that out. If you, if you feel like you need to get, you don't, you fall out of love with each other, then by all means, you know, just be happy. So they would take that position. And then you have the churches that some parts of Christianity who would say divorce is permitted in certain circumstances like the two we described but no, no remarriage if you get remarried and some people misinterpret these verses to say if you get remarried then that's committing adultery right? Have you heard that before? If you divorce no matter what the reasons are and you get remarried then, then you're committing adultery well that's, that's what they would believe no remarriage ever but divorce would be permitted. And then some would say divorce is permitted under certain circumstances. 
And if it's permitted under those circumstances, then God's not a punitive God, so there would be freedom to remarry without, without this judgment of committing adultery. I'm going with it. All right? <laughs> I know, really. <clears throat> we could have skipped over it. So, three things, quickly, that I want you to um, kind of get your minds around here, and we've kind of touched on a little bit. What the scribes and Pharisees taught about divorce and remarriage. It was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give him a certificate of dismissal. Pointing back to verse 21, you have heard it said, uh, in Jesus' day, the rabbinic position was the most liberal of the four mentioned earlier. So it was all of their permissible for any reason and no questions asked. Okay, that's where they had gotten to. Everybody was falling into that camp. Jewish leadership was in that camp. You know, who you married to this week? Ah, does it matter? You know, I'll have a new one by next week. I mean, that's, that's kind of, I mean, what's that? That's just, that's just prostitution without exchanging of, of money, right? Um, a lot like today. No, no commitment, no accountability, uh, no connections to each other. And what that leads to is, is a total callousness when it comes to relationships in, in the community. And if you're God and you designed this to be a picture of your relationship with people, you can imagine what kind of a reproach that is when this is the portrait I've put forward so you'll understand me and my desire for an intimate relationship with you. I'm willing to stay the course and to love you and redeem you even when you act unfaithfully toward me. And yet God's looking at his people and saying, wow, they're just not understanding. They don't understand how these relationships work. Um, so the attitude and action had become so casual that a man could divorce a woman over anything, like a burned meal or not hemming his uh, robe right or something. Um, and many of them didn't even bother writing the certificate of divorce. The focus of the passage is not whether or not divorce is permitted. It does not provide for divorce, much less command it. It was actually, I'm talking about Deuteronomy, uh, actually a statement to narrow the issue. God never commanded or condoned it, but he allowed it because of the hardness of their heart, Jesus said. Okay? The certificate did not make divorce right, but it served to give protection to the woman. It provided proof of her legal freedom from her husband and the right to remarry. Um, so the Lord's primary purpose in Deuteronomy 24 was not to give an excuse for divorce. It was to show the evil in divorce. All right. Second thing is what the Old Testament taught about divorce and remarriage. We cannot understand the Bible's teaching on divorce until you understand its teaching on, on uh, marriage. Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. Marriage was and is God's plan. It's his best plan. It's not man's plan. God intended monogamous relationship, commitment, a covenant, one to the other. And uh, it's a lifelong pattern of union. Cleave to means permanent attachment. It's like gluing two things together with super glue. Okay? Even more than that. You know, it, if you can imagine two people being able to merge their flesh together, I just talked to you about those girls that I knew that were born as Siamese twins. Okay, that's, that's about as close a living example as we have, even though part of them, a good portion of them, was not 
in, in, interconnected with the other. But marriage, it is. As, as you're married, you know, it becomes a spiritual and emotional and physical merging together, the coming together of the two flesh. So when, when a divorce occurs, that separation occurs, there's a rending, a rending, a tearing of the two apart, just like you would one body being ripped apart, if you can imagine that. So the consequences are, and, and you know, and you know this, you've seen it in our society, you've experienced it in lots of different ways, you've seen it in your families probably, you know, I'm not, I'm preaching to the choir, I know, you, you understand the ramifications and, and the difficulty that this brings. So um, nobody is, is arguing that, I'm sure. Uh, in marriage, husband and wife know oneness spiritually, physically, and emotionally. Um, the fall in the garden immediately impacted this relationship that God had designed. Adam, you remember, Adam, first thing, accused Eve. You know, it's her fault. Um, we see, you know, Cain killing Abel. And, and right on down it goes. And, and I've heard it said that that's where the battle of the sexes began, right there in Genesis. That God designed two people of equal value to be helpmates. But in that moment, um, God's curse was that, Eve, you no longer will see yourself the way I've designed you, but you will, you will desire to rule over him. You'll, you'll buck the trend. Okay? And men, because of what's going on there in that relationship and the fact that women will now try to domineer over you, is that you will bow up and buck against that. And so we have feminism and chauvinism right there together, right out of the gate, and it's been going on ever since. So it's nothing new that's happening in our culture today. Um, and so what did Jesus teach about divorce and marriage? Let's see what we haven't covered here. These legalistic, self-righteous scribes and Pharisees, Jesus was saying, you consider yourselves to be great teachers and keepers of the law, but by allowing no-fault divorce, you have caused a great blight of adultery to contaminate God's people. By lowering God's standards to meet your own, you have led many people into sin and judgment, including yourselves. Now imagine hearing that. You're in charge of being the watchman on the wall of this society of God people. Your job is to guard them spiritually, to shepherd them, to point them to God. And Jesus just said, everything about what you're doing is all mixed up because of what you've allowed to, to permeate into the culture. You haven't done your job well. The Pharisees believed if they'd found something distasteful, they, they could or should just, just divorce their wives. They were prideful that they, did not, um, that they didn't commit adultery. But Jesus is making the case, because they abuse the idea of divorce, you do commit adultery. Every time a man without proper cause, very high standard, mind you, turned his wife loose to remarry, he essentially forced her to commit adultery, which made him also an adulterer. Because Jesus specifically mentions divorce being permissible on the ground of adultery, and because he is also specifically saying that he does not come, did not come to contradict the law, it seems that divorce was allowed at some point to take the place of stoning for adultery. So God divorced Israel and Judah for committing spiritual adultery rather than putting them to death. Joseph 
didn't put Mary to death, but uh, was prepared to write her a certificate of divorce until God intervened. Um, so why would God allow divorce to replace the death penalty? You know, if adultery, the crime, the, the sentence for, for adultery was the death penalty, why would God allow the nation then to adopt a policy of divorcing instead of that? Uh, it's been suggested that maybe Israel had become so immoral that there was no, not a sufficient desire among the people for righteousness so that they would carry out the execution. Yeah, that's part of it. That's part of it. But, you know, the woman caught in adultery that the, the, um, the guys brought to Jesus, I mean, they were playing with this. They, they were using it. They, they weren't interested in righteousness. You know, they weren't interested in righteousness. They were interested in using it to trip him up, to trap him. So they were, they were manipulating these things to serve their own purposes. Nothing more, nothing less. And they were doing that with all the law. But this one God considered very, especially egregious, I think, because of the, uh, the importance placed upon the, the covenant relationship because it was a reflection that mirrored God's covenant relationship with man. Um, so apart from the death penalty, divorce became the alternative um, because of their hard hearts. And, and it exploded. It became... You know, became one of those things where I imagine these guys yucked it up and bragged about how many divorces they'd had, right? I mean, we see it in our culture, um, in, in some of the um, celebrity cultures. I don't know who holds the record. Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, Elizabeth was married, but she was married to the same guy two or three times, so does that really count? Uh, one of the Gabor sisters was married a multiple uh, times, so I don't know what the record is, but... Six, seven, eight, nine times is is probably probably in the ballpark for some of these people. And uh, not not for my youth, but like I was talking to somebody, and she said like they have something called a body count, which is how many people you've had sex with before. Mm. And so the youth now are just kind of like clicking it up how many people you've been with, and it's just I don't know. Yeah, for those of you that were here this weekend, or maybe it was Sunday morning, when Todd was talking about the the impact of on your conscience of sin, you know that that with sin, you know sin continues that that the the culture, uh, the secular society says was it Freud? He was talking about Freud. That Freud would say that in order to uh, get over your guilt. Just keep doing what it is that you're doing to make you guilty because your conscience will get calloused and you won't feel guilty anymore. Okay? And, and that's exactly what happens with us and that's what's going on sexually in our, in our culture that the, more, the higher the body count, the more that these people don't realize that they are um, making their, they're searing their conscience, they're searing their hearts so that they're not capable of loving uh, another individual. They're not capable of entering into a relationship, a meaningful relationship. These, they're substituting the physical interaction for a real bona fide relationship. Uh, so it's, it's really sad and heartrending where we are as a society. And, um, and we know that you know, the, the situation with our families has become so dysfunctional in many ways because of 
because of the brokenness and stuff. So, and and that's not again to to condemn or judge. It's it's stating an observation of where we are as a society because we've we've not taken it seriously according to God's commands and expectations. So, we know that Christ's blood is sufficient to cover. Right? What happens? Someone. Um, Someone goes through a situation like this. Maybe it's a no-fault divorce. Maybe they, you know, they're two two people go through a divorce for whatever the reasons, and you know they become believers, or maybe they are believers. I mean, are they just doomed to live under this this heavy cloud of guilt and shame the rest of their lives? Is that the way it works? Is that what is that what Jesus is suggesting? I don't think so. I, I think that, um, first of all, this is what kingdom life looks like, and Jesus is making the case that, that divorce is not acceptable. Okay? It's, it's not acceptable, and it's, it's critical even that we not go there. Just like he's saying with expressing anger or lust, and get, that lust is a part of adultery and all those things. Um, so what happens when, what happens when, you, when you engage in lust? And Jesus would say you're an adulterer. Do you live under the do you live under that shame and stuff for the rest of your life? Guilt? You're supposed to carry that around the rest of your life and flagellate yourself, you know, uh, from now on, beat yourself up over it because, you know, you're an adulterer. Um, you uh, you lose it, get angry, say something, you know, I hate you, which Jesus says is murder. Okay, do you have, are you a convicted killer now that you you just live the rest of your life under that? Is that the way it works? It's not, is it? No. I mean, Jesus came to die, and His blood is sufficient to cover all sin. So we would say that all these things are sin. Okay, sleeping with someone before marriage is sin. Fornication is sin. Adultery is sin. Divorce is not God's. It's not God's best. So it's breaking God's law. But can God forgive it? Yes, the blood of Christ is sufficient for all things. So, uh, you know, Jesus... um, If His blood is only sufficient for certain sins, then we've got a real problem, don't we? The problem with sin is that it has varying degrees of um, scarring ability, I think. You know, the divorce issue is a, is a public sin. It's, you know, it's not something you can really keep to yourself, is it? You may go home and click on the computer and look at pornography tonight and lust after that, and you can keep it to yourself. You, know, you can hide that pretty easily. It's going it's, it's to have its impact on you and influence on you, so it's going to have wear and tear on your soul, but as far as the public goes, you can keep that hidden to yourself. But you can't do that with something like divorce and with a broken family. So it, it carries that stigma with it and that, that public persona that makes it difficult for you to maybe um, maybe serve in some certain areas where you'd be responsible for ministering to families and encouraging you know, families to reconcile and put marriages together and those kind of things. It might make it a little awkward for you in those kind of situations. But the bottom line is that... There's no guilt 
under in Christ. You know, the, the guilt, if we maintain guilt, it's because we can't forget. You know, and, and we don't we don't understand the, the depth and the the absolute uh, cleansing power of Christ's blood that shed for us. But just like that, you know, pack of gum I stole as a kid out of the, you know, convenience store, you know, that's long been forgotten because that ah, wasn't a big deal. Well, it's it's a it's lying, right? It's stealing. It's sin. God sees it as sin. So sin is sin. The consequences of sin vary. The impact of sin can vary. And, and how we have to deal with the aftermath of sin may vary, may be different. Okay? But the blood of Christ between us and God is sufficient for forgiveness. Right? And, and, and we want to pray that God enables us to walk in that forgiveness and to go from there. And it's, it's not about, you know, I don't know if you ever do this. You know, I'm 59 years old and I've sinned a lot in my life. I know that's hard for you to believe, John, but I have. I've sinned a bunch. And, and I, I regret that sin, but I regret the damage that it's done to my relationship with God. You know, I try to think about, you know, all those, the, the baggage I carry or the things I'm haunted by or the experiences that you can't wipe out of your, you can't erase from your mind, the rebellion, the anger, you know, whatever it may be, all those things and how that's damaged. So I'm, I'm looking forward to the day when all that stuff does get erased and I get made new again so that I can have intimate and perfect fellowship with God. And that's coming. That's coming because of Christ and because of Christ only. There's a lot of things we would undo if we could, all of us, but we can't. And so what we do in the meantime is the Bible says that we should try to renew our minds through the Word of God. Uh, that we, uh, Romans 12, 1, isn't it? 1 and 2, that we don't conform ourselves to the world, but we renew our minds with the Word of God. And, and it's amazing how that happens, you know, as you begin to memorize Scripture or meditate upon Scripture and contemplate what God's saying and, and, and revel in the promises of God that He says, if, if you confess your sin, I'm faithful to forgive. 1 John 1, 9. What that means, God says, if you confess your sin, I cannot refuse to forgive it. And when God forgives it, if you again remember what Scripture portrays forgiveness as, He says it's as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? God says, I put it back here in the middle of my back. You know, when's the last time you were able to look directly at the middle of your back? You know, even, even if you got three mirrors, you have a hard time seeing the middle of your back, right? God says His imagery is that when you put your sin under the blood of Christ and you trust Him to cover it, God says, it's as if it never happened to me. Me and you, we continue to live with it because our tape recorders can't be rebooted right now. But there's coming a time when Christ does return that He's going to make us perfectly new again. In the meantime, we continue to 
try to reboot by going to God's Word and having God's Word wash over our minds and renew our minds. And that's the best we can do until He finally makes us like Christ in the end. So, sin is sin. Is it serious? It is serious. And it's something we ought to be praying against. And we ought to fight diligently for the marriages and the marriage relationships and, and the sexual purity you know, for our young people and, and all people. We ought to be fighting hard for those things. Go to the mat for them. And, and we have to be careful, too, that when sin does come in and threatens to wreck relationships, that we're quick to not judge and condemn, but to pick them up and take them to the throne, right? Take them to Christ and point them to Christ so that they can be, they can be picked up and, and put on the right path again because His blood is sufficient to do that. If we confess, if we confess our sin, He says, it will be forgiven. Okay, you have any questions about any of that? I know that's heavy.